because the way that I think about the you know digital identity is it underpins so many services today. So it underpins banking, it underpins, you know, healthcare, it underpins online gaming, you know, all of these different things that we want to be able to do online. Digital identity really is the platform that enables those services to work and be secure and, you know, all of those things and allows people to, you know, comply with the the regulatory requirements that they need to. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the question, is capitalism in crisis and will building smarter markets be the antidote? Welcome back to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial and technology markets can be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is brought to you by Abex, and I'm Michelle Dennity, the host of Identikit Sequent X, our current long-form series examining the role of digital identity in advancing a consent-based economy. On today's episode of the series, I am delighted to welcome Emma Lindley, co-founder and executive director of Women in Identity, a not-for-profit organization focused on developing talent and diversity in the identity industry. Over a 16-year career in identity, Emma has held various executive-level roles, most recently as the head of identity and risk at Visa and as an executive advisor for Trust Stamp a provider of privacy-protecting technology for the identity industry. Ms. Lindley was instrumental in the commercial development of GB Group's position in the identity market back in 2003 and has been recognized in the Innovate Finance Powerless for Women in 2016 and 2017. The KNOW Identity Top 100 Leaders in Identity three years in a row and was voted CEO of the year at the KNOW Identity Awards. Emma has an MBA from Manchester Business School and a lovely accent to match it, and has completed her thesis in competitive strategy in the identity market. Stay tuned, Identicate Sequin X with Emma Lindley is coming up next. And now back to this week's episode of Smarter Markets. So welcome to Smarter Markets, Ms. Emma Lindley. Introduce yourself. We've all heard the formal stuff. Tell us uh, who you are and what you're up to these days. Hey, Michelle. Thank you very much for having me on. My name is Emma Lindley. I have uh, worked in the digital identity industry for about 19 years. A whole bunch of kind of different companies. I started out life at uh, GBG Group. I've worked at a number of different companies, uh, Confirm, which we sold to Capital One. I was head of identity and risk for Visa in Europe for a while. And I'm currently doing um, a couple of different really interesting contracts. And I'm also uh, doing a whole bunch of board advisory work, uh, including I'm on the editorial board of the Good ID movement. So let's dive right in there, because I think this is so fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about what the Good ID movement is and how we can apply it in our smarter markets context. Sure. So, um, I mean, I think as the identity market, the digital identity market has evolved, there has been, you know, as with all of these things, you know, things can be either tools or weapons. 
And people have really started to look at digital identity and gone, well, you know, how could it, uh, how potentially could it be used for, you know, for bad things? And there are obviously a whole bunch of ways in which, you know, digital identity could be used badly. And we've seen that most recently with the issue around biometrics um, in uh, in Afghanistan and the concerns around the biometric systems there being used to identify people, you know, in uh, by the Taliban for, you, you know, for bad things. And so the Good ID movement was started by Omidyar Network, but it's really been a coalition and collaboration of organisations really looking at the principles around what makes Good ID. And, you know, there are a number of different aspects to what what really makes a good ID. Uh, one of those which is one of the things that I'm really interested in and why I was asked to be on the editorial board of the Good ID movement is really around inclusion, because I'm also uh, one of the co-founders of Women in Identity, um, which is a, a non-profit organisation which we started two and a half years ago, really looking at how we can get you know more diversity in the digital identity industry, because typically it's not a particularly diverse group of people that are in the digital identity industry, but really also focused on how we can make sure that products work for everybody and make sure that digital identity products are inclusive and work for all the people that they that they're supposed to represent. Yeah, there's so much to unpack here from Afghanistan to inclusion. And so many of these things, they feel like exclusively social issues. And are these really leadership issues? Are they really business issues? I've really take a hardline view on these things that they really are not just nice to have kind of community issues, but these are solid issues that are critical, I believe, in a smarter market, a more inclusive market. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, not necessarily what we could have done better in the Afghani case, but also how you feel that inclusion and women in identity and and people from different backgrounds and the way they approach technology in general, but also how we self-identify. How does that show up in specs and builds and requirements that are actually creating incentives for new and different kinds of business? I know that's like a super compound question, so you can undo it any any way you like. (laughs) That's okay. So I'll break it down into component parts. So if we look at the issue around diversity in our industry. So, you know, digital identity industry, it's a tech industry. Um, you know, it is, uh, you know, there are, there are typically, you know, it's highly represented by, you know, sort of white male, uh, you know, from a particular socioeconomic background, uh, you know, and we've got women are, you know, massively underrepresented as well as other, you know, underrepresented groups, you know, people of colour are massively underrepresented in our, in our industry. Now, you know, we can all kind of sit here and go, wouldn't it be nice if we had more diversity in our industry? Um, but I think there are some really, really critical issues of why we need to have more diversity in our in- industry, because it will really help build more inclusive products. Because the way that I think about the you know digital identity is it underpins so many services today. So it underpins banking, it underpins, you know, 
healthcare. It underpins, you know, online gaming, you know, all of these different things that we want to be able to do online. Digital identity really is the platform that enables those services to work and be secure and, you know, all of those things and allows people to, you know, comply with the, the regulatory requirements that they need to. And so I think when we think about it as being that platform, we want to make sure that, you know, as many people can use those services as they possibly can. Now, if we look at hard numbers, McKinsey have calculated across different markets, but it's anywhere between. So having a digital, fully functioning digital identity market in a given country can be anywhere between three and 13% GDP growth for that market because those, that, and they're really big numbers, right? You know, 3% GDP growth is worth having, 13% is really worth having. And the difference between those, those kind of that range is whether it's a, you know, perhaps a more digitally mature market like something like the UK, you know, less digitally um, mature market, you know, perhaps like somewhere like Ghana, for example, uh, in Africa. And so, it's really worth having that that kind of that revenue growth, that GDP growth. If we have systems, so the, the digital identity system underpin, and it's because, you know, for the financial systems will sit on it. So banking will sit on these digital identity systems. So if we don't have fully functioning digital identity systems, it means that governments and, and countries are not going to be able to obtain that growth. If we have systems that only work for 50% of the population, your 3% is only going to be 1.5%, right? Which is why economically, we have to build for inclusion. So, you know, I can sit here and go, it's really nice to have diverse teams, wouldn't that be great? But the reason why we need to have diverse teams, in my opinion, building these, these systems is because the more homogenous groups that we have building these systems, and we know this, these are facts, you know, homogenous groups have blind spots, you know, they, there is unconscious bias. They have blind spots and there are things that those groups are just not going to see. Let's just say it's all people from a certain type of socioeconomic background, you know, that are a relatively wealthy socioeconomic background. They won't have the, the understanding that perhaps people, you know, in the UK, for example, it is a you have to be of a certain socioeconomic status to have a passport because it costs £80 to get a passport. Um, and you have to afford to be able to go abroad, right? So, um, and then in order to drive in the UK, you need to be able to afford to have driving lessons. You need to be able to afford to drive a car and own a car. That all costs money. And so, People of a certain socioeconomic status, typically, you know, poorer people will not have passports and driving licenses. So if we build digital identity systems with homogenous groups, perhaps people all from a, you know, relatively wealthy socioeconomic background. And I have seen this. I've sat in rooms and I've heard people say, everybody's got a passport. Everyone's got a driving license. And there's five million people in the UK that don't have one of those documents. And so everyone they know has one. Yeah, yeah everyone they know they have. They, they all have one. They all sit around in the room and go, you've got one, Bob, haven't you? You know, you've got one, you know, <laughs> Melissa, whatever, whatever, you know, and they've all of course they have and everyone agrees. That's why we need to have more diversity in the teams, because the more diversity you have in the teams, the more perspectives you'll have and you'll build better systems. You'll the people building the systems need to represent the people they're building the systems for, right? To actually make sure that they work for everybody, to allow us to get to those hard numbers of GDP growth. 
that's the kind of the reason why I think about inclusion in that way. Yeah. And, and what I'm not hearing is like, oh, it's the right thing to do. And, you know, people are not other people are sad. It's like, no, we're, you know, you've come out of the banking and identity and credit. You know, this is hardcore. And when I'm hearing three to 13 percent of GDP growth, I'm assuming that is not exclusive to the use of credit. I mean, that's got to spill over into different markets to make that much of an impact. A hundred percent. You know, it's it, it's it's also cost savings. So if we think about digital identity systems, they can take paper out of processes. They can improve operational efficiency because people aren't having to do things manually anymore. You know, if we look at the, the cost savings that governments can make by having functioning digital identity systems. So it, it isn't just the banking industry, the credit industry. You know, it's it's government, it's healthcare, it's operational efficiency, it's operational cost savings, as well as growth in terms of digital services and people being able to build, you know, innovation, you know, digital innovation on top of these systems, it really is the plumbing. And in order for us to have that GDP growth, we have to have everybody being able to use one of these systems, right? We have to include everybody. Otherwise, we can. We have to accept that we're going to have less of a GDP growth. Yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting. I think sector by sector, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Where do you think this digital identity or the digital authority happens? Or are you thinking that it happens in sort of microtransactions? Where, where are you on that? Does it come from the government that, that hands us something that we all have and it's who we are and what we are? Or is there a way that this becomes a little more fractalized? And, and I want to get to back to Afghanistan after this question, sort of that, that's sort of inspiring me. <laughs> The way that I view this is that I believe that government does have to be at the table, um, but I don't believe that government has to own the systems. I don't believe that government has to own, you know, citizens' identities. Um, I, I think that we can build systems that can be public-private sector collaboration. Certainly, government has a lot of value to add because government has, you know, data sources that can be citizens can be validated against. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, they have to expose that data. That doesn't mean that they have to share that data. That doesn't mean that, that the governments have to own the identities, but certainly have, I believe that they have a role to play in these systems and, and an ecosystem in which they are built. I do believe that private sector also has a, a role to play because there's a huge amount of innovation that's also happened within the market. So I do think that in order for them to work effectively, both public and private sector have to be involved. And when we think about them from a maximum transaction perspective, I typically might only interact with, and I'm based in the UK, you know, the UK government maybe once, maybe twice a year, but I'm interacting with my bank all of the time. And so I think that, you know, I think to have the the ability and, and it's that thing of, you know, people using things that's that kind of front of wallet and front of mind. The more transactions and more utility that I can have with this digital identity. And, and I'm not also saying that there has to be one, but the more utility I can have with with something and the more transactions I can use it for and across, the more people will keep it front of mind, will use it and um, the better it will be. So many thoughts. So my background, of course, is data protection, privacy, governance. There's all sorts of digital trails telling all sorts of digital stories with these identities. 
And and so I'm interested in what you feel about the impact of time and circumstance on digital identities. So just to clarify that question, um, when you say time and circumstance, what's in terms of the frame of reference, what, what do you mean? I didn't want to overly lead you, but I, I'll, I'll lead you a little bit. <laughs> I suspect that, so in Brazil, for example, there's this organization called CIPE, which is CIP. It's, it's like the interbank clearance thing. And I found it so incredible. It's basically that there are a series of little receipts. So I can go to the store with a receipt that says someone owes me money and I can buy an apple. And so it's kind of this microtransaction, fascinating economy with 23 million people living in in Sao Paulo, right? So I'm I'm thinking like, so there's one model where the transaction sort of lives on for a moment and the greengrocer needs to know that they're going to get paid for the apple. The person that owes this person money needs to know that that money now doesn't go to the person that goes to the greengrocer, et cetera. I'm not saying that they do or do not carry that transaction, but it's in a moment in time, right? So that that digital storyline is held by these three party players for a moment. The other way of looking at it is sort of the Afghani issue. I remember when these databases were being put together and as a privacy person being incredibly upset and concerned that, oh, you know, if, if someone loses the biometric data, they're not going to be able to get in because we own the systems. And, and of course, we've seen the opposite way. So if you own someone's identity story for a long period of time, eventually, there's not as much interest. That apple's long been eaten, the bill's been paid or not paid, and on you get, and now you have a stack of information. So that's what I mean by time and context is, should we have a large system of record with everything on the blockchain or distributed ledger that says this is the kind of wedged in phone identities in stone, um, maybe wedged in phone is is the new wedged in stone, but um, the new identity that's forever? Or is there a time for a moment in time transaction? That's sort of what I was getting at. I think it's a really interesting question. And it's not necessarily a, um, a technological question. Um, it kind of feels like you're, you're asking me more of like a philosophical question. And so I think, I mean, one of the things about, you know, a lot of the digital identity systems is that they, in my opinion, they do codify people and people's data too much. So we are at Women in Identity actually working on a project at the moment, looking at particularly, and it's, it's, it's really focused around exclusion, um, but we've just released a video t- today, which is, um, is actually somebody from the transgender community. And she um, has obviously, you know, um, changed status from an identity perspective, um, but is now left with having to prove her identity with five different identity documents. Because what's happened is she's ended up codified as one gender and is now kind of going, well, this is me. And then, you know, the, the bank tellers are saying, well, who is that person? And she's saying, well, that is me as well. And I think what we um, what we have to do really is we have to really think about for particular transactions, really limiting the amount of information that is required for that transaction. And I think where, we, where all of the systems have got to, you know, looking at this 
probably from your lens of a privacy lens is historically what we've done is we've kind of said to people, well, you need to tell us everything about yourself. You have to tell us everything. And, you know, as you said, we're going to store that in a big database, uh, you know, as a toxic asset, uh, you know, that can be stolen and breached and all those terrible things that can happen to it. And I think we have to move to a world where we are just asking for the very, very minimal amount of information that we need to actually make those transactions happen. And we also have to ask ourselves whether we actually, you know, have to keep that, you know, keep that data, keep that record um, and how long we need to keep it for um, really through that privacy lens. Because I think historically what we've done is, you know, from an organisation perspective is is just kept all of that data. And actually, realistically, you know, when you go and look at that data, a lot of these organisations don't need to keep it. Now, if we think about the way that digital identity, you know, is starting to move in that end users have, will have more control over their, you know, their kind of their data and this idea of sort of self-sovereign identity. I think that will move us towards that moment where individuals, they are in control of how much data they're sharing, Um, you know, and there are principles around, you know, how much data is actually shared. And if that data even needs to be shared, whether it can just be a yes or no response, you know, this idea of kind of verifiable credentials. And those are where an organization has said, you know, this piece of data is correct. And then it's effectively we're just having a yes or no response on it. We're not actually sharing any data. You know, that data's kind of residing with the organization that it needs to. And we need to move away from this, you know, large scale data gathering um, because it is a risk. They're toxic assets and it's a risk. I, I love that you said that they were toxic assets. This has been sort of my my analogy for years of don't collect if you can't protect. That's thing number one. And number two, as this moves around your organization, it's never going to be something that's not going to cause you liability if you're not curating it. And that creates a cost. So I do, I, I share this belief of, of toxic assets, and, and I'm glad to hear it from someone who's been the interface in the banking industry to validate. Now, I'm wondering, you know, back to your, your GDP, I wonder if the, the correlation of the increase in GDP would be altered if we had more federation and opaque handles from the technological point of view to just say yes when, you know, is the question is, are you over the age of majority to enter a, a club to go dancing for a night, that should be a yes, no. It shouldn't be, here's my actual birth date. Um, I certainly shouldn't have to get into the dead name conversation um, if I happen to be transgendered. But I'm wondering, is the GDP correlation based on this giant store of data that tr- follows us around? Or do you think that's based on the possible and potential and growing transactions facilitated by smaller chunks of data? It has to be built on the latter because if it was to be the former, that's enormously risky to that GDP growth. Because if we imagine, you know, you build, you bake a massive data set together and the whole lot gets breached. And we've seen this. We've seen this in in a number of different countries. We've seen it with the Equifax breach, right? So, you know, big, big database gets breached. Um, Actually, all of that 
GDP growth is going to be undone. And um, we've seen it in you know, South Korea where they had to start all over again with their digital identity system because the entire system got breached. So that is going to really stall out your GDP growth. There's also a whole bunch of sunk costs with that, right? So they spent a load of money building a system. It Then the entire thing gets breached because, you know, they've built an enormous centralized honeypot of data. So I think it has to be, the, you know, it has to be the latter. We have to look at ways to make these systems that are privacy enhancing. We have to build a way that they're not a central honeypot of data. And we do have public and private sector collaboration over them to increase the amount of transactions. Now, that is, I mean, I'm saying that it's not without its complexity, right? Because to build a centralized database is a lot easier than to, you know, do verified credentials and, you know, um, decentralized identity and keeping data in different pots. That adds a huge amount of complexity. And it's interesting because when I talk to people from outside the industry, they go, oh, just the whole digital identity thing. It, I think it's just, you know, I think people are overcomplicating it. And I'm like, hmm. No, I do actually think it's quite complicated. Yeah, I think we've undercomplicated it, actually. <laughs> yeah, I do think it is actually quite, it just seemed complicated. And the reason for that is because it is complicated. Um, because we're trying to do a whole bunch of things there that, you know, in, in lots of cases we haven't done before because the old world order is stick it all in some giant database. Um, we can't keep on doing the same thing and expecting a different result, right? Um, we have to do things differently. Like I'm imagining in the mind of the person that says this, I mean, obviously they haven't thought that hard about it, and, and, but let's, let's sort of extend that metaphor out a bit. Like, can you imagine waking up every day? Your credit score is the same. You eat the same thing every day. You have the same aged children. You have the same job. You have the same income. I mean, that would be a simple identity problem to solve. But unfortunately, we do not have that problem. <laughs> no. No, huge amounts of diversity, you know. Um, and and the other thing is as well, the other thing I often hear is is people going, oh, well, they've made it work in Estonia. So let's just take the Estonia market, right? Let's just take the Estonia market and let's just transpose that to India. And I'm like, hmm, okay. <laughs> so there's some Neat. quite big <laughs> cultural Seems like a really good idea. Um, and so uh, the whole also the other thing about identity systems is they are completely cultural, you know, because the the foundational data that is within that country, their attitudes to data, their attitudes to privacy, the way that they interact with technology, the amount of infrastructure they have, it differs in every single market. And so whilst we can take, we can look at other countries and we can admire what they've done and go, haven't they done an amazing job in Estonia or whatever people happen to think or, or Denmark or, or whatever, um, we have to start these systems from kind of ground zero. We can look at other systems and say, that's an interesting thing and I wonder if it could work in our market. But what we can't do is just take a blueprint from another country's digital identity system and transpose it. It just doesn't work because it's just too different. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it sort of juxtaposes two different things. I actually, I, I wish I remembered which thing I was listening to, but this is where I think standards come into play somewhat. You can't replicate, but there's a great podcast on when Norway switched their driving side from the left to the right. 
because they actually looked at it as an economic thing of most of the continent was going to start driving on the right-hand side. And there was a day where they, and they had all this like music. It was like Svensson drives on the right. And they had all of these like national things because they thought that for the country's economic benefit, they had to follow the standard. And it's quite interesting. And I think the standard of identity can be sort of an an analogy. You need to have some sort of a standard, even though you have your own flavor and and what goes on in commerce on top of that, but you have to have a means of understanding what it means from one credential to the next. So I 100% agree with that. And that's the kind of interoperability question. Um, You know, it's kind of going, how do we make these things talk to each other? Um, But I do, I mean, you know, we've got in Europe, we have uh, EIDAS, which, you know, is the 27, um, unfortunately, the UK is not included anymore, but the 27 EU member states, um, you know, and they have their EIDAS. And, um, but then we look at how other countries have tried, have mapped onto EIDAS. So, you know, the Can- Canadians have looked at their standards and gone, well, how would we map onto it? So I think, you know, there are ways of making that work. And that's all about international cooperation at standards level. But I think it is still possible to cater for the cultural sensitivities of a given market and, you know, their views on privacy and and how they want things to work and still make things interoperate because we do it in other markets. Right. So, you know, we we do it within the, you know, kind of mobile telecoms market. We do it within, you know, kind of to a certain extent, you know, within uh, energy markets. And so I think it is possible to do it. Um, We just I think sometimes. What we do do in perhaps the technology and the digital identity industry is um, where I do think we probably complicate things a little bit is we think it's almost like sometimes we're reinventing the wheel every time. And I'm a big fan of kind of going, well, let's have a look at some adjacent industries and they've had a similar problem and they've they've kind of made it work. What can we learn from that? And that's not to say you have to do it in exactly the same way, but I think we can learn from other industries because those are not new problems. Um, they're problems that exist elsewhere and, and they've managed to be solved to, to a lesser, lesser or, or greater extent. You're kind of driving me back to where we began and I want to kind of explore a little more, which is the inclusion and diversity, because I love a good analogy. But I also was the one who packed all the diaper bags. You give me a, you know, a piece of sticky tape and a paper towel, I have a diaper. You know, that was not my uh, my partner's vision. <laughs> like if he didn't have the actual object, he was not, you know, he was like, we don't have the tools we need. So w- where does, th- that's my bias into it is like, I noticed that People with similar backgrounds to myself tend to look horizontally for solutions and we reuse and we recycle and we do stuff differently. Where, where does diversity come here? And, you know, maybe you can give us a little sneak peek on some of your research into the transgendered community, as well as your identity radically shifts um, into a, a different place. Where does that come to lead us from a technology requirements, from a social acceptance, from getting these kind of cultural differences to ride on top of these. I, I feel like this kind of all comes back together into, you know, the the short the sharp point on the end of your spear. Yeah, I mean I I think you know, when I talk about that idea of building digital identity systems from the bottom up, I think you have to start with the people. And I think that the challenge I have with our industry is everyone starts with a technology. Everyone goes, oh, well, 
Uh, well, there's a blockchain for that, or there's an authentication for that, or there's a this, or there's an API, or there's a something else. And I'm like, well, hang on a minute. Aren't we building these systems to work for people? How about we look at the people, the people that are we're building them for? And I think we just, we have to do more of that. We have to start with the, what is the problem that we're trying to solve and who are we trying to solve it for? And it always starts with the problem and it always starts with the people. And, you know, if we start with technology, we're probably going to have some really cool technology, but we're going to find that there's a group of people that can't use it, you know, or don't want to use it or, you know, would prefer sort of some other type of technology. Um, You know, I always use the example of my mother-in-law who doesn't know anything about biometrics, but um, her bank in the UK decided that they were going to roll out biometrics and it was facial biometrics that they were rolling out for the banking um, piece. And, and so she knew I knew something about it. And she was like, well, my bank, she was outraged. She was like, my bank's rolling out facial biometrics. And I was like, so I was like, well, I'm interested. I was like, well, well, why does that concern you? You know, what concerns do you have? And so she and she came out with the thing that I was least expecting. She said, well, I don't think that's secure. So I'm like, Oh, okay, right. And I'm like, well, what would you think is more secure? And oh, she, mom. Yeah. And she was like, she was like, well, I think it should be iris biometrics. Yes. Yes, my queen. <laughs> not something I expected. She's got no background in this, right? But it's not, it's not what I expected either. So, but I think it's when we have to, um, and I think if her bank had gone, well, what we're going to do is we're going to offer people a range of biometric enrollment. That, I think when you give people choice, A, you're going to kind of build it for a wider range of people. People then go, well, that particular thing doesn't work for me, but that thing does. And I think that's the thing that we kind of have to really think about. We have to start with the people we're building it for. And we have to kind of give people some choice. Now, one of the challenges that I see is people going, oh, well, you know, that particular type of authentication doesn't equate from a security perspective from to that particular thing. But I'm like, but if you only give people one choice, if you're very binary and just give them one way to do it, you are going to lose people along the journey. You're going to have a group of people that go, I don't want to do it. You're going to have a group of people that go, I can't do it. And that's going to mean you have less inclusion in these systems. And that's going to mean if you're a bank, you're going to have less people opening accounts. And that's going to mean you you lose money. So in my opinion, it's kind of short-sighted to build systems that don't work for everybody. Yeah, I I love I love I'm in love with your mother-in-law too. <laughs> She's brilliant. Yeah, I'm I'm loving your mother-in-law right now so hard because I think she was she was outraged. <laughs> oh, and I I love I mean for all the right reasons. It wasn't like this kind of luddite thing at all. And I I think, you know, what you're tapping on is actually, I mean, this is scientifically proven, right? Choice and self-efficacy which was my senior thesis from many, many decades ago in, in college, when you feel like you are in control, you you have more endorphins in your body, you have less stress in your body, you are more willing and open and creative because you feel like you have control and some sort of self-sovereignty. And to the bank's point, well, if the iris scan that she would be comfortable with, and you know she's probably like a Bond fan with that one. I love that so hard. If they think that's less secure than a full facial, I think, again, what is the outcome? 
is she going to be a hedge fund trader or is she doing a market account and, you know, maybe putting extra funds in so that she can go and, you know, go to Turkey on her on her winter holiday? You know, it's like, what kind of a relationship commercially do you want to have with this person? And are you overdoing it by having only one choice? So you may be cutting yourself off at the knees, over-technologizing and giving less choice, which would leave a person ready to bank with you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, th I think that's it. And I, th I think it's that thing about, you know, sort of people sometimes as well, kind of leaping forward to the latest technology and going, oh, well, we have to have all of this kind of new technology. And sometimes that isn't necessarily the right way to do it either. You know, um, offering people a way to actually still go into a branch and be able to do things manually. Um, and I, and I, I use this analogy a lot when we had a lot of people talking about blockchain and how blockchain was going to solve all of the kind of world ills, including identity. And, you know, I can remember talking to somebody and they said, oh, well, you know, we're going to have this. Everyone's going to be using self-sovereign identities. So bearing in mind, this was this was five years ago. Um, and he was like, everyone's going to be using self-sovereign identities within two years. And I was like, oh. OK, yeah. And I was like, do you do you still do you still use cash? And he went, I do still use cash. And I went, right. I was like, so. <laughs> Uh, do you have aye, some aye, cash aye. in your wallet? Yes, I do have some cash in my wallet. And I was like, so you've got cards, you've got, you probably possibly still use checks. I mean, you know, we don't use them so much in the UK, but I know that the checks are still used elsewhere, but people are still using cash. And even, even, even a global pandemic still hasn't killed out cash. So, you know, we're, it, I think these kind of technological in, innovations, it takes a long time for people, you know, kind of by general public to catch up with their understanding of them and if we if we kind of over kind of solutionize and kind of put all these technical things in front of people I think we just run the risk of losing people along the journey. I think you're right and I, I also think too is when I think about risk and compliance and security you know to your to your cash analogy uh, mid-pandemic I went to a coffee shop um, mostly because I was just amazed I could walk into a building at that point in, in the pandemic. And I got myself a little cup of coffee and I was ready to like turn and leave the door. And this work crew came in and they ordered a whole bunch of coffee for, for themselves and the crew. And then they went to pay with cash. And the woman at the till said, sorry, I don't take cash right now. It's in the middle of this pandemic. And so the look on this fellow's, you know, he's obviously an essential worker. So I, you know, I happened to be there. I, I had a card. I went and I bought their coffee and they were lovely about it. But I thought, wow, you've not allowed for the people who are actually allowed to be out and about buying coffees to actually do the transaction that they want to do and have the cash to do. So if you don't have that layered approach and you don't have some of the old and some of the new as you're in this transition phase, I think it's a problem. I agree. And I think because everyone's working in that kind of really technological field, they we overestimate the speed of change, I think. Yeah, I, I think so too. And, and the thing is, like, because they're not very diversely built systems and they are built for a forward thrust trajectory and we will win the war when we do have takedowns, when we do have ransomware, or even way back in Y2K day, my uncle was leading a bank at, back at the time. And I said, looking back, uh, I was like, so what, what was your main plan for Y2K? And he said, paper and pencils. 
And sometimes that is still working. (laughs) So I think it's, you know, it's one of these things, right? It's like sometimes you, you have to remember, like, remember Gilligan's Island, they could build everything but a boat. So I think we can build a lot of things, but if we don't know what the outcomes are, that 3% or 13% of growth of GDP might just be a paper exercise. Yeah, for sure. So Emma, tell us something big and profound. Take us out. Give us hope. What's next? What's, what, what is the identity woman doing next? What do we do next? Um, so we, uh, Women in Identity, we are working on a project which we're calling a Code of Conduct. And the Code of Conduct, is a, it's a sponsored project. It's going to be running. Uh, so we're, we're just starting to release some of the work that we're doing. Um, it's focused in Ghana and it's also focused in the UK. Um, so we've kind of picked two different markets to focus it on. And we are going to be doing a whole bunch of work around what it means for some of these groups to be excluded. Um, so, you know, what does it mean to be a transgender woman and, and and not be able to use the banking system because you're transgender and you can't prove your identity? What does it mean to be somebody with, you know, a disability and unable to use a type of technology because and then you can't get through the digital identity systems and therefore you're unable to access healthcare or government services, you know, what does it mean to be of a particular socioeconomic background? And that means that you then don't have, you know, perhaps the latest smartphone or the foundational documents to be able to prove your identity and and get access to these services. So that's what the project's really focused around, um, is really bringing to life those, those stories, those human stories about what it means to be excluded. And then we're going to be writing a set of guiding principles around inclusion. And then the most important part of it is we're going to be building an implementation framework. So this is going to be a, you know, a a framework that a product manager in a bank or in an identity company could pick up and go, okay, you know, I'm building a new product or I'm implementing a new identity product. How do I make sure that I'm thinking about inclusion? What are the questions that I need to be asking myself? You know, how diverse are the team that I'm building it with? And do those people come from different backgrounds that might, you know, that are going to represent the people that are going to be using this system? Um, Because what we want to do is help the industry. We want to help the industry build better systems because I believe that we can to get to that point where we can have systems that allow this GDP growth. So that's the that's the big thing that we're going to be doing. Uh, we've started at Women in Identity. We've just started to release some of the, the videos. Um, today is International Identity Day and we've released our first video and we're going to be releasing that over 2021 and through to 2022 to the industry to allow them to use it. I love it and happy ID day. I'm sorry that was remiss. I did not bring a some sort of a card <laughs> or a chip. I did bring my iris. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I think this is so exciting. And so women in identity is, is what's the URL so people can access those videos and that content? Uh, the URL is www.womeninidentity.org. Uh, we've also got a YouTube channel. We're on Twitter as Women in ID. So you can just pick up any of the content from there. Uh, we're doing the work in a, with an amazing partner, which is Caribbean Digital. They've done huge amounts of, of work in this space around inclusion. So, yeah, we're really excited about that project. And we, and we think it's going to be really groundbreaking and, and really helpful for the industry. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Smarter Markets and our continuing examination of digital identity and its role in building a trust-based economy. 
Please help us get the word out about the podcast by leaving your ratings and reviews on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Your support and engagement means the world to us, as does your help spreading the word about smarter markets via social media and word of mouth. On behalf of ABAX, I'm Michelle Dennity. See you again next week. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Markets.